0: Okay, so yeah, we're making we're making progress in John... Oh, if I do that, it won't be in the way. This is going to be weird. I've never had the podium over here. Um, okay, yeah, so we are in John 19. Uh, we're going to pick up in verse 17. We're going to get to verse... Uh, we'll get close to the end of John 19. Uh, then no cross point next week. Then the following week will be uh, John 20, which is the resurrection. Do y'all know Danny, Danny Combs, the youth pastor here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so Danny will be preaching here on the 20th, um, and I'll be preaching to the Utes on Wednesday night. We're just flip-flopping. Um, so, uh, Danny will be preaching John 20, and then John 21 on May the 4th, and then we're done with John. This is crazy. It's like two years. Like, I'm really excited. Two years in the book of John. It's, been great and crazy and overwhelming. So uh, we're finishing up. So yeah, we're in John 19 tonight, um, which is uh, which is the crucifixion, the story of the crucifixion. And I have the whiteboard, uh, which is a great comfort to me. Most of the time I'm up here, I wish I could draw for you, and I never have this. And we got this fancy silver whiteboard, right? Remember that terrible wooden one we had? Uh, anyway. Uh, I'm just gonna waste my time up here, so um, let's get started. And I have a little watch on my phone now. I mean, on my wrist, so I'm gonna know exactly where we are. And I'm not gonna keep you here for an hour and a half. Um, So, uh, okay, yeah, let's get started. Uh, So, something when I was when I was uh, maybe 15, 16, uh, like before I got really into some hardcore drugs, and I was still sort of grappling whether. You know, I believed in this stuff or not. Um, one of the things that I would encounter over and over, because I read a lot of Proverbs when I was younger, I read the Proverbs a lot, uh, was this idea of wisdom. Uh, and, and you're going to see later in the New Testament that there's this dichotomy that's set up between uh, heavenly wisdom and earthly wisdom. Um, and that's sort of odd to me because wisdom, in, to me, sounds good, all around good. So we've got earthly wisdom that pertains to earthly things and heavenly wisdom that pertains to er heavenly things. But why would earthly wisdom be bad? It seems like that's just sort of a weird thing to say. Um, But the more you sort of read the New Testament, you're getting the picture of what God is saying. And it's something that's so foreign to us, something that's so foreign to us. Uh, And I want to show why I believe it's so foreign to us. But the idea that we get the difference between heaven and earthly wisdom is that earthly wisdom seems to be uh, wisdom that you gain by sort of experiencing life and weighing and measuring your experiences and trying to understand what went wrong and what's the wise thing to do, how to be wise with my money, how to be wise with what I'm given, how to be a wise steward. And so wisdom is a lot about just the experiences of you figuring things out as you get older. It seems to be having something to do with wisdom and my understanding of it, especially the earthly wisdom part, is I'm growing in applicable knowledge as I experience more things so it's not just knowledge but it's like applicable knowledge because I'm experiencing new and different things I'm knowing how to apply the knowledge that either I've been given or I've learned through experience right so it's that sort of you know like don't buy a three thousand dollar vacuum cleaner it's not worth it right i learned through experience um dumb uh those sorts of things right but then it seemed like heavenly wisdom was something, something a little different. It wasn't something that you learned through experience. It was something that you received. Um, it's something that you received and that the Lord imparted. And that you're sort of, I don't want to say passive, but you're sort of passive in that. Um, it's wisdom from heaven to you. And sometimes it's contrary to earthly wisdom. Like some people under guidance from heavenly wisdom, sell everything they own, give up all of their financial security for the future, and move to another country to help orphans. You see what I mean? So there's this, like, difference between heavenly wisdom and, and earthly wisdom. And, and I don't really fully know, understand the dichotomy. I, really, I just sort of wanted to h- bring that to your mind because I think it gives a good segue into, in, into something that I don't think we really think about when we think about the crucifixion. Um, and of course, it's going to come from Genesis three, so we're going to go there, because um, that sort of intersects with this other thing that, as I read Genesis three, which I like, apparently I read it like every day. But uh, as I read Genesis three, you sort of see something that's weird: uh, the tree that that Adam and Eve eat from that brings the curse of man and the fall of mankind. The, the name of that tree. What's the name of that tree? Right, the, tree, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Doesn't that sound like a weird name for the tree that causes the fall of mankind? Shouldn't it be like the tree of death and destruction, right? Or the tree of this will ruin everything. You're right? Like, this seems like a more a, a better name. But it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um... So, I, I want to draw this picture, and, and I want to do it just because I think pictures help us feel things. Can you all see that? I may move this. Wait, Caitlin, are you coming back up here? If you are, just sing over here. Okay, sorry about that. Okay. Oh, and that one, too. Okay, there we go. I, I think pictures help us feel things. Uh, so, I think what we see in the garden is something really, really interesting. Prior to Adam and Eve eating of this tree that causes the fall of mankind, um, it seems like, and you may not be able to see this marker, so you're just going to have to remember what's in the box. Um, It says dependent. Um, That humanity exists in this really beautiful dependent relationship upon God. It says things like um, that God creates everything in the garden and sees that it's good, and then he gives to the man uh, from every tree in the garden and says, you can eat from every tree in this garden there's really no like there's really no like hey you're going to have to do all these different things, and if you do them right, it's going to work out and you'll get peaches off of your tree, but if you don't do it right, the tree's going to sort of die and uh, it's sort of like uh, the tree's going to grow and you're going to partake from it and you're going to eat and you'll be provided for. Um, And you're seeing early on this dependence upon uh, God because he is so present and so close. Um, That's really, really quite beautiful. And the only thing you get by way of a commandment prior to the fall is that commandment that we talk about all the time. Um, It says, after he creates everything and sees that it's good, every day God looks at it and says, that's good. He makes something new on the second day, sees it and says that it's good. You know, third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day, season, it says that it's good. And then it says that he creates humanity and places them um, differently than everybody else in the garden. Everything else in the garden is created to, is created to um, its own kind. But it says that he creates man uh, and woman. He creates a male and female after the likeness of God. Everything else is created by its, own, to, to, by its own likeness, except for man and woman. They're created in the image of God after the likeness of God. They don't have their own likeness. They have a likeness like the Creator. And then it says, uh, God blessed them. So you've got to keep that in mind. blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply. Be fruitful, multiply. That means have babies, uh, a lot of them. Um, Multiply, and then as you have babies, make them fill the earth uh, and subdue it because you are the vice regents of me in right relationship with With me, you will bring my kingdom, my sovereignty, my will, uh, my way of life, my way of doing, my way of being. Because you're in my image, you'll bring it to the planet. Uh, So have a bunch of babies. Have a bunch of, uh, like we've said before, little gods. Not like like gods, but in the image of the creator. Sorry, that was just confusing. In the image of the creator, have babies who have more and more image of the creator so that the image of the creator is all around the planet. Be fruitful. Multiply. Fill the earth. Subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and and the things that creep around on the land. Um, So over here in this dependent relationship, it sort of feels like um, you receive provision. um, You trust the provider. So God said words to Adam and Eve, and they believed them and trusted them. You receive provision, you trust the provider. What else did I say? Um, oh, you rest, you rest in this dependency. Okay, is a shaky board. Rest in dependency. And I have wonderful handwriting, so if you can't read that, there's something wrong with the way you read English. Um, so, and then here, remember this. Yeah, be fruitful. I'm going to write this down here. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it, right? Fill the earth. That's the way it's supposed to be. Okay, so then they encounter this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, And then you're seeing something really, really interesting happen when they encounter this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which God said, hey, you can have anything in the garden except for that tree. And it seems like, it seems like as I read, as I read that text, it seems like what's going on with that tree, and you see it unfold in Eve's conversation with the snake. Um, You see something unfold in this conversation with the snake. Uh, In that, in every other place, so remember it's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So the snake says to Eve, uh, "God God, God say you're not supposed to eat from that tree? Yeah, we're not supposed to eat, Eve, Eve says. You know, we're supposed to eat from that tree. We're not even supposed to touch it. Um, or we'll die. And he says, you're not going to die. You're not going to die. So you're seeing very early on um, that there is this enemy who is attacking this right here, this trust in the provider. You see the enemy coming against, uh, don't, don't believe what he says. Don't believe what he says. Um, and then you're going to see something in Eve where she says these really weird words. Where it says right before she eats from the fruit, um, she sees that the tree. Uh, she sees that the tree is good, for food, and that's really weird because, the only other person who has seen something and called it good, this far into the text would have been God. And it's really emphatic because at the end of every day, God sees what he has made and says it's good. He sees what he says, uh, sees what he has made and says it's good. And he does that over and over. Um, and so you're getting the impression that God has the knowledge of good and evil. And the snake even says that. Uh, he, you're not going to die. He just doesn't want you to eat from this tree because he knows if you do, you'll be like him, knowing the difference between good and evil. So she hasn't eaten from the tree yet. And the next thing she says is, I see that it's good. I see that it's good for food. So if you've been really following what's going on, you'd be like, Eve, no. No, you don't. You don't know what's going on. It's not going to be good. Um, But you're seeing develop in their conversation this other thing that I think God allowed on purpose, independence. So she sees that the tree is good for fruit, that it's desirable to make one wise. Okay, here comes that whole word, wisdom. Wisdom. Is desirable to make one wise. Eat from this tree. Eat from this tree. And this whole existence of joyfully receiving, resting in dependence, knowing it all doesn't, it, it doesn't, you're, like it doesn't, it's not on your shoulders to do any of this. The Lord is with you and he's going to provide and you rest in this dependency. That sort of beautiful place of, like, I don't have to figure anything out. I don't have to figure anything out. I've got to figure anything out. And then, In this tree, in this tree of the knowledge of good and evil um, is the opposite of that. So that she, she sees this is desirable to make one wise. This will make me like God, being able to know and understand the difference of good and evil. And I'll be able to weigh and categorize and decide what's good, decide what's right, decide what's the right way to go, right? I'll be able to decide these things. So in the tree, being like God and knowing the difference between good and evil makes God irrelevant. If I know what's good and what's bad, I don't need God to tell me what's good and what's bad. And so you're seeing in Eve, and and I don't know why it's this way. I think we have sort of a flat view of what went on with the tree in the garden, but what I believe is going on there is really and honestly, there is this two-way they could go. And God set it up with that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, knowing what they would do, knowing that if they go this way and they don't eat from the tree, they're in this dependent relationship where they just receive provision and they trust the provider and they rest in that dependency and it's just this beautiful life where they do what they were called to do. But then they eat from the tree because, right, she sees that it's going to make one wise, where I don't need to trust the provider, I can trust myself, I can do what I need to do. Um, I don't have to receive provision because I can figure out what's going on, and I'll be the provider here. So you're seeing this sort of weird thing going on there when, she's, when they tell us why Eve eats from the tree. Desirable to make one wise. Uh, it's, it's good for food. Um, and then so what you're going to see is she does eat from the tree, and then we're going to see the fall of mankind. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put under independence just so we can sort of feel that. Um, uh, provide for yourself. Don't trust provider. And then I would put right here toil. There's no rest because now that you're independent from the creator, you've got to figure this out. You've got to figure out what's best. You've got to figure out what's right and wrong. You've got to do the weighing and the measuring and the judging. You've got to do all that. And so what you see really interesting is they eat from the tree and then look at the curse. It's the opposite it's the opposite of the blessing. The blessing is be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. So we'll skip the snake for now and we'll come back to the snake. But for the woman, it's I'm gonna increase your pain in childbearing, right? That what you were called to do is gonna be really difficult. It's gonna war against you. And not only is it gonna war against you, but in the same way that you were deceived here, it's going to keep on happening. The enemy that deceived you and, tra- and taught you not to trust the provider and that you can provide yourself and that you can be like God, he's going to continually do that. And so just the way they play this out, like, uh, like me and Lauren have seen this play out now that we have a baby, we can really see where the fall of humanity affects Lauren differently than it affects me. Lauren really feels insecurity, really feels um, fear surrounding the home surrounding the child so as she goes about being fruitful and multiplying it wars against her and this is where she receives the bulk of lies from the enemy right Um, same thing for the man okay so just seeing the other side of this fill the earth and subdue it you're seeing in the man's curse that you're going to toil and by the sweat of your brow you're going to cultivate the land By the sweat of your brow, you'll bring dominion to the earth. So you're seeing in the curse just the opposite of the blessing. And all that's happening in that curse is what you're seeing God saying, separate from me, you're still going to be doing what you were called to do. It's just going to war against you. And it's going to be really, really tough. And you're going to be in this place of independence where you've got to figure out for yourself what's right, what's wrong, how do I do this, how do I provide for my family, how do I eat, all these things. And then you're going to see in the curse of the snake something really really interesting it says to the woman i'm going to put enmity i'm going to put sort of how else do you say enmity that's how you say it enmity i'm going to put this sort of aggression between you between your seed and the snake's seed but then he says but one day the seed of the woman is going to crush your head not the seed of the serpent's head the seed of the woman somewhere down in the line of this woman uh, is going to crush the head of that particular serpent. So he says, I'm in between, between your seed and your seed, but one's going to come from this seed that crushes your head. Really interesting, really interesting. Uh, I believe it's the first mention of Jesus in the Bible. Uh, is right there in Genesis 3. So we're stuck in these two places. And what's really interesting is that I believe Adam and Eve had the complete freedom to go this way or this way complete freedom to be in this place of rest and dependency this beautiful place with God where they receive his provision they walk with him and there's no really weighing of right and wrong there's no really weighing of what's the right thing to do the wrong thing to do I got to figure out how to make this happen it's just this restful joyful dependency upon God sort of like when I sort of like my dog is and it's weird to use that example but when you look at a dog do you ever look at the dog and you're like they do something just terrible like this week both of my dogs jumped into the car, landed on top of the baby in the car seat, and one of them was like standing on the baby. And I went into a rage. I went into a rage. I won't tell you what I did, but I went into a rage. But the dog had no idea. And thir- like 30 seconds later, after I've just gone like so, I disciplined them, not in anger. But the dog just comes back, right? Like. <laughs> I'm like do, you, like, do you know what you did? You don't know. But just this like... I'm cool. Like, everything's cool. Just, it, just lost in I don't know what it is, but it's definitely something like ignorance of right and wrong, good and evil. Like a dog doesn't lay around all day in the yard and then get to the end of the day and be like, "Man, I' only wasted a day, you know?" Right? There's just something about that, that everything else on the planet except for us that doesn't even entertain the thought of good and evil. Doesn't entertain the thought. We're the only ones. We're the only ones. And I want to say, it's not that awesome. Right? It's not that awesome. I would really love to lay around all day in a fur coat in the yard. Right? Right? And then be done with that after eight hours and have only eaten food and drank water that day and feel totally cool about it. Okay, so, so you see what I mean? You feel what I mean by this sort of relationship? But we traded it for the knowledge of good and evil because we wanted to be like God. And God, after, after the curses and after even saying, like, the seed of woman is going to crush the head of the serpent and, and then explaining how we're still going to be trying to fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, it's just going to war against us and the enemy is still going to be doing these exact same things. Do this your own way. Don't trust what's been told. And so you're really going to see the lies of the enemy come in as we try to do what's happening here. We're really going to see that. Um... And so it becomes really clear that two things resulted from Adam and Eve's choice of this. After them, nobody else gets the choice. We're all born here. Like when you were born, God didn't come to you and put a little little tree and be like, do you want to eat from the tree or not? Because if you don't, we can do this thing. After Adam and Eve, this is all we have. Adam and Eve spoke for humanity. And this is what they chose, right? This is what they chose here. And, and so something's really clear. Is we don't have a choice. We're stuck here. That's the first thing. And the second thing is, is the reason that we're stuck here is because that choice put a separation between God and man. It put a separation between God and man that's really, really quite interesting. It's really quite interesting because what you see in the separation um, is that it results in this... When this is what we were designed for. It results in this sort of independence where when we were in the garden before this, we didn't have to, uh, there there was nothing in us that said you need to do this or you're not valuable. You need to do this or you're not acceptable. You need to do this to satisfy you. You need to find this to be satisfied. We we didn't have to do that at all. We were just in this satisfied place where it was almost as the voice of the Lord in our nakedness and we're walking around and he's saying, no, you're acceptable, you are right and you are good, and everything is right between us. Almost as if there's this voice that never goes away, just constantly saying you're acceptable, you're right, you're good, everything is between us, is fine. Uh, So much to the degree that we didn't feel the need to wear clothes. We felt so valuable, accepted, vulnerable, satisfied, that we didn't have to wear clothes. That's weird. It's super weird. That's the way it was. Uh, So, two things. We could never come back to this because of that separation that has been created between man and God. Um, And so, God's response to that, because what we're seeing in God is he's way more sensitive than we would have imagined. When he puts this up, he creates everything, and then he says, hey, don't do that, and we did that. What you would expect from God who is perfect and justice and can do all things, and he can speak and create things, create stars, he can do whatever he wants. You would think if he created these little beings uh, who are supposed to be his image bearers, and they, they don't just rebel from him, but they say to the most powerful and good being in the universe, we don't really need you, it's okay. And then the result of that is death uh, wars, violence, and everything that you see going on in the planet right now. Um, and, and you think God's response to that would be let's just, let's, just, let's just blow the place up. Let's just start over. It would save us a lot of pain and a lot of tears and a lot of wars and a lot of just terrible things. A lot of abuse would save that. Just blow it up and start over or something. But He doesn't. You see God coming, He's way more sensitive than you would imagined. He comes in and He covers uh, Adam and Eve. He, he sacrifices an animal Uh, Because what you're seeing going on in the heart of God is this really weird thing that we talked about two weeks ago. It seems as if, and it only seems as if, as if God's between sort of a rock and a hard place. Uh, Perfectly just, but still needing uh, and wanting, I'm going to say needing, but still desiring good for these beings. But being perfectly just. And so you sort of see it, the only way I really could explain this, and this may be too old for you, you. Did you guys see the movie Blow? You should not have seen that movie if you did. Yeah, okay, you should not have seen that, Um, but it's about, someone told me, I didn't see it, Uh, someone told me it was about, uh, Is this guy uh, who gets caught up in cocaine, dealing, gets caught up in um, just the lifestyle that that produces, and he becomes really wealthy, gets all these women, and gets all this money, and then everything starts really falling apart for him, uh, he becomes addicted to the cocaine, and everything sort of starts crashing around him, and then he goes and seeks refuge with his mother, and his mother is slowly trying, is slowly figuring out what's going on with him, and there's this crazy climact, climactic scene in the movie where the mom and the dad call the cops on him because he's been hiding out, and they find out he's been on the run from the cops for a while, and he's lost everything. Uh, I think he's lost his, his, I don't know if he's lost his wife at this point, but everything is crumbling around him, and he's, he's hiding from um, I believe the 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 feds, right? That's what they say, the feds. Um, and you see this climactic scene where there's been tension between the mom and him for a while, but the mom loves him so much and doesn't know what to do and she's so confused. But in the end, because she feels like justice needs to happen, uh, she lets them know where he is and the cops bust in and she watches the whole thing and they take him and they throw him in the cop car and they've got that crazy Like, I I think Northeastern accent, and they're like, it's for your own good. It's for your own good. But you see her, she's just torn up by this thing. She's just torn up. Having to administer justice on this son that she loves so much. And you see God is in that place, right? Loving these beings, but being perfectly just. So what you see set up from that point on, and it plays out for the rest of the Old Testament, um, is this theme of substitutional sacrifice, where God says, in place of your death, I'll require the death of an animal. Um, and you're gonna see this lace throughout the entire Old Testament. You see it right here in Genesis three, where the first animal is killed and where they had tried to cover themselves with fig leaves, he clothes them with an animal skin and says, okay, you're still acceptable to me, not because of this animal skin, but because of what this animal skin points to. This animal skin and the death of this animal points to the Messiah who is going to give his life uh, for all of mankind. And then you're seeing woven into the Old Testament uh, Passover, which John has been talking about over and over. In Passover, you're seeing this beautiful allusion to Jesus um, where the Jews are in Egypt. Um, and they've been slaves in Egypt for 400 years, and, and the, the Pharaoh will not let the Egyptians go, even though Moses has been coming and saying, hey, let them go, or we're going to put like a plague on Egypt. And so uh, the Nile turns to blood, and and there's frogs everywhere. You know the ten plagues. And then the ten plagues culminate because the the Pharaoh's heart just gets hardened and hardened and hardened. The ten plagues result in uh, the angel of death coming into The angel of death coming into Egypt, um, and for every house that does not have the blood of a spotless lamb over its doorposts and on its side rails, think of where the blood would be, here, dripping here, and on each side rail. Uh, It doesn't have the blood of a spotless lamb in those places. um, The firstborn son of that house will be killed. And so Pharaoh's firstborn son dies that night because, of course, he didn't receive, you know, put this, put this lamb here. All the, all the Jews, their houses are saved because that they put this blood there and ate this lamb the way they were supposed to eat it. Um, and so they call it Passover because on that night, the angel of death passed over their house because of the, lamb, the, the, the blood of this lamb. So you're seeing that woven into the fabric of Judaic life is that Passover celebration. Every year they do that same thing where they put the blood on the doorpost and they eat this lamb, um, all to remember so they could teach their kids. There was a day when we were slaves, when we were in bondage, um, and the Lord sent the angel of death that passed over our houses, killed the firstborn sons in Egypt so that the Egyptians would let us go. They would remember the Lord working on their behalf. Uh, you're also seeing woven into the life of the Israelites another yearly festival called the Day of Atonement, where again, a spotless lamb would be taken. Um, and this spotless lamb would be brought up next to another goat. Um, And I I think actually it sort of of changes a little bit throughout their life, but it's still the same idea. Uh, The spotless lamb is brought up and sometimes another spotless lamb, but I believe it's a goat most of the time. Um, And what happens is they verbally speak all of the sins of Israel onto this spotless lamb that's been searched over for three days to make sure that it's spotless, found to be spotless. They speak the sins of Israel, all of the unknown sins that they didn't know they committed. They speak over this lamb. Um, and then they sacrifice it, and they let the other one go free. This is where we get the word scapegoat. Uh, they let the other one go free. Another picture of the work of Jesus. Um, he, spotless, he being spotless, receives the sins of the world. Um, not just the sins of the Jews for a year, but the sins of the world while we go free. Passover. The firstborn son is slain. Um, while everyone else is passed over right you're seeing these allusions to Jesus woven into the fabric of Judaic life and then just on a on a weekly basis there would be uh sacrifices and offerings uh at the temple where they were to worship and before they could even enter the temple where the presence of God dwelled before they could enter the temple they would need to take a lamb or even sometimes a pigeon depending on how rich or poor they were um, and they would need to sacrifice they would need to kill something they would need to shed blood on the altar before they could enter into the presence of God. It was, it was God's way of saying, look, I'm not really cool about these animals, but I want you to know something. There's something between us that's got to be fixed because even though I love you so much and I want to fix this, uh, I am just and perfect, and I don't just, like, let this stuff go. You know what I mean? This isn't just going to be like, hey, everything's fine. Cause all this violence and death and destruction. Everything's going to be cool. Um, so what you see happen is before humans can enter into the presence of God, a uh, lamb, uh, something would be slain on this altar, and they would have to ceremonially wash themselves in a basin of water. I'm clean and need to be cleansed, and the only way I can fully be cleansed is not by water, but by the blood of something. Really sort of weird, and if you look at that, we're like, that's so archaic. Um, And what God is saying to the Israelites the whole time is this is not about the blood of those animals. The blood of those animals is setting a foundation for what I will do that will fix this problem. Because my desire is for you to come back here. And I really want you back here because this is killing you. This sucks. This doesn't. This is what you were created for. But the only way to get back here, the only way to get back to that sort of life... That sort of life where we're not weighing the good and weighing the bad and trying to do everything right not trying to do everything wrong we're just we're just caught up in existence with the creator where we do and be all that he's called us to do and be like that's what he's calling us into but we don't have the choice to be here uh, because of the that thing that exists between humans and God and so woven into the fabric of the Israelites is the answer to that that one day a being will come who will fix that problem and he will do it by the shedding of his blood and he will do it uh, of his own will. He's not gonna be a lamb that you sort of drag up there that you've spent the last year sort of making sure that it's spotless it's so odd oh, there's a spotless lamb you know why it's a spotless lamb because the only way you can keep a lamb spotless and without blemish is that you care for it and nurture it every single day it's not a lamb that you put out to pasture it's one that you raise and like you bottle feed from from the time that it's young and you make sure it doesn't get caught in little fights with the other goats with the horns like you have to be with this lamb and so when you bring it up every year it's a big deal i've grown really close to this lamb it's spotless like i love this little baby lamb you ever seen a baby lamb right there's just this attachment, and then you have to bleed it out. You got to do it. It's crazy, okay? And every, I mean, it's it's woven in weekly and yearly, twice a year into the lives of the Israelites, saying there's a problem and it's got to be fixed, and nothing external is going to fix it. Okay, so I think we've done well to lay the foundation there, um, and I think reading this—that was just introduction—but we're going to fly through this now. We're going to fly through this now. Let's read John 19. I think things will be super clear as we read them now. Uh, So 17, verse 17 uh, of chapter 19. Actually, I'm going to read 16 first, first. Following what we looked at last week, this really heavy, Uh, time where Pilate just does not want to turn Jesus over. He does not want to turn them over to the Jews. He does not want to crucify him. And the Jews just sort of manipulate Pilate into doing what they want. And they finally say to Pilate, we have no king but Caesar, which is so ironic. Uh, We have no king but Caesar. So Pilate delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews, which is just too long for a sign. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Isn't that so ironic that they says the Jews, who, who Jesus is coming to them first to be their king and to set them free from that? And their response to him is, We don't have any king but the oppressor, Caesar. We don't have any king but the slave driver, Caesar. And then written above his cross, it says, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. And they write this in every language that it would have been spoken around there. It's crazy. Uh, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, which is John, the author of this book, uh, standing nearby, he said to his mother, so Jesus looks at his mom while he's on the cross, and he says, woman, behold your son, talking about John. Uh, and then he said to the disciple, John, behold your mother, and from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. So you're seeing, you're seeing uh, Jesus recognize that his mother uh, is going to be in a really tough place without a, a husband or now a son. Um, And so we need to find a way for her to be taken care of. So John becomes the caretaker of Jesus' mother here. Um, And then here's where we get into all these allusions to Jesus uh, being these different Passover lamb and the Yom Kippur lamb. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch. Hyssop branch, incidentally, this is not mentioned in the New Testament anywhere else, but a hyssop branch is one of the things that you would eat during the Passover meal. You would eat bitter herbs, and hyssop is a bitter herb. So part of the lamb that you would eat on Passover would also be hyssop. Um, When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And then we're going to talk really briefly. I'm going to turn that around, and we're going to draw. What exactly does he mean, it is finished? That's what we need to, to hash out. But let's get to the, finish the story. Uh, He bowed his head and gave up his spirit since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross. Just so the day of preparation is the day in Jerusalem where they kill half a million lambs to celebrate the Passover. So keep in mind, while the Lamb of God, while the Lamb of God, the Yom Kippur Lamb, the Passover Lamb, the Lamb who takes away the sins of Israel uh, before they can enter into the presence of God, all these things that point to Jesus, the one that points to him the most vividly is the Passover Lamb, and at the same time he's being crucified, there are 250,000 lambs being slaughtered also. There are lambs being slaughtered for the Passover meal, spotless lambs being, so all throughout Jerusalem you would just hear, these lambs, and Jesus is here on the cross. That's what they mean by the day of preparation. So that the bodies would not remain on the cross because the day of preparation is a holy day and you can't have bodies hanging around because the Jews have this aversion to dead things. Um, uh, Remain on the cross on the Sabbath for that Sabbath was a high day, a holy day, Uh, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So one of the things they would do, if they wanted to get them to suffocate more quickly on the cross, um, instead of being able to push up for several hours to breathe, um, they would come by with this big wooden thing and they would break their their knees. So they would just sort of have to to hang there and suffocate. Um, Okay, so that their legs might be broken and they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first, And of the other who had been crucified with him, but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Why is it important that they said that? Hilariously enough, and not hilarious, but crazy enough, the Passover lamb specifically, in being prepared, cannot have any of its bones broken. You cannot slaughter the lamb and then break any of its bones. When you take it apart... So that you can cook it and eat it, you cannot break its bones. For some crazy reason in Exodus when they said the Passover lamb, this is how it's got to be cooked. You've got to do it this way. It's specifically pointing to the fact that Jesus would be on the cross and his legs would not be broken. Because the Passover lamb is fully a representation of Jesus um, and his ability to set people free. It is the Passover lamb that sets the Israelites free. Uh, But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Why blood and water? Because of what I said a minute ago. The only way that a Jewish man can enter into the presence of God is he's got to walk by an altar where the blood is shed for his sins and a water basin where he might be cleansed. So it's saying wrapped up in Jesus are the water basin, the ritual water basin, and the ritual altar that keep men away from the presence of God so that Jesus is literally tearing down the wall that exists between men and God because only in God's administration of justice upon his son can he clear up the justice that should have been administered to humanity, to you, to me, for everything that I've done, for all of the things that I've done in my life. Uh, all of the rebellion I've caused in my house, all of the problems that I've caused my parents, everything that I have done has been wrapped up, even the things I've done since I became a believer, when I treat my wife poorly and I'm impatient with my son, all these things are hanging on the cross with Jesus because those are the things that are giving, getting in the way of me and a holy God. Not just my guilt about them and my shame about them, but the actual uh, wages that are due to me for those actions. Uh, But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. This is talking about one of the guards. One of the guards was there. And John's actually writing this 90 years later and saying, look, there's a guy that did this that's still alive. If you're curious about it, go ask him. He was there. Um, He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him who they have pierced. So we're seeing all of what John's just saying. He just wrote those things so, so you would say, and understand that everything that's been going on in the life of the Jews is to point to Jesus. He will be the one who fixes this problem here. He'll be the one who makes this not the case anymore and this possible once again. And so I want to draw something real quick and you're going to have to let me do it in seven minutes and then i will let you go. Um, uh, let me, I'll erase this. I I want you to see something because I think even though this is possible and this is where the Lord has provided a way for us to be, I think we still live here most of the time. We still live here. Um, And I'm not saying because y'all are idolaters and you want to be independent. I think it's literally because we're lied to all the time and every day. And while we can have an intimate, joyful communion with the God who created us where we can depend on him and be uh, at rest with him, we don't understand really what Jesus did and we don't rest in it and so when we get lied to specifically by the enemy and about the world about what it means to actually walk with and be with Jesus and be with God how that can be possible how do I deal with shame how do I deal with guilt how do I do when I don't live up to my own expectations we don't really know how to understand Jesus fixes those things and so all we do is look at Jesus and think that's really great that he did that now I can go to heaven and really Jesus doesn't interact with today Jesus doesn't interact with the guilt that you feel about not having had a quiet time this morning he doesn't, he, like, we haven't learned how to let Jesus interact with the guilt that you feel about what we talked about a couple weeks ago, where you're really trying to walk out holiness with your girlfriend, and it's really not working out, because even though both of y'all are trying to follow the Lord, and you really want to be holy in your relationship, you just continually put yourself in really weird positions that cause your, your clothes to come off, um, and you do things you don't want to do, and then, and then immediately you get wrapped up in guilt and shame. You don't want to run back to God, because you're like, I know he's probably pretty angry with me, and I really don't know what to do here, where I want to be holy, but I'm just, like, so tired. Tired of what I do. So I think most of us are pretty much in that place where we want to be what God has called us to be and we're trying. We want to have this joyful, intimate communion with God, but it's not working out. And most of the time, our daily life is one of I'm doing school, I'm doing work, I'm so tired, I got drama going on around me. How, what the heck does Jesus down on a cross have anything to do uh, with anything now? Yeah, I'm glad I'm going to heaven. That's fine and fantastic. Okay, what like? And, and then most of the time, I think what's going on deeper inside is you sit here and listen to me talk about joyful communion with God and talking about how he fixes these problems and everything is beautiful, and then all that does in you, because you're not experiencing that sort of life with God, what you really are caught into is this sort of frustration with God of like, where are you, why don't you speak, why don't you tell me what's going on, I want something different and I want your help, and you're just sort of like in this nasty place, and it's really hard to bring that sort of honesty to the Lord and say, look, I think you're messing up here. Like I've been trying to be holy and I've been trying to spend time with you. And it feels like when I do try to spend time with you, it just feels like you're not really there or you don't really care. Or when I try to pray, it sort of hits the ceiling. And so we're sort of caught up in like, yeah, joyful communion is possible by Jesus, but I'm the only one who doesn't get to experience that. But we don't tell him that, right? Because that's offensive to him and we're afraid he's disappointed in us. So we still wake up in the morning, try to open the Bible, sort of feeling guilty, sort of feeling shame sort of feeling nothing, close it up, do that four times. doesn't do much for us. So we quit for three weeks. Then you hear me preach on it, and you're like, God, I need to get back to the Lord. So try again. No. So I want to draw something, and it's something I drew last weekend for a class that I taught, Uh, and then incidentally I had to draw it like five more times that week, and it just really made me think, okay, I want to draw this out so we can sort of grasp it and deal with it. This is what Jesus does. I need to show you what happens on the cross. Let me show you what happens on the cross. Okay, so some of you have seen me draw this. I'm drawing three lines. Okay, um, let's call this d- depravity, or we can call it guilty. I would say what most of us feel a lot of the time. And this is innocence. And so if we were sitting down talking, I would, t- I would ask you, tell me what the difference between innocence and perfection is. That's what i would ask you what's the difference between innocence and perfection and we'd sort of jump around it for a little bit you know you might say like innocence is not knowing wrong perfection is knowing but doing the right thing and just for the sake of this drawing innocence is having done nothing wrong and perfection is having done everything right okay they're two sides to the same coin two sides to the same coin but they're a little different and in our minds perfection is better than innocence right when it's innocent, you're like, eh, you know, not really anything great. He just hasn't done anything wrong. It's like the good church kid. Nothing really great, right? He's never done anything bad. So that's it's okay. Perfection is something different. Not only did he not do anything wrong, every single thing that he does is perfect. Every single thing. Okay, so. What we saw from, from, the, from the drawing on this side is that all of us, because of the choices of Adam and Eve, were born in this place. We're born guilty and separated from God. Um, and then what happens is by belief in Jesus alone and not by anything else, because nothing else will satisfy God and nothing else makes him look at us and be like, good person. So, n- nothing else, by belief in what Jesus has done alone, this happens. We're brought from depravity to innocence. The blood of Jesus cleanses, right? Where I was guilty, the blood of Jesus, he has been crucified in my place and in my stead. Uh, This, uh, I'm associated with him in his death, so it's as if I was crucified, and everything I've done wrong has been placed on the cross, and I'm made innocent. Now let me show you something. Um, in the 14th century, 12th, 13th, 14th century, I want to show you how this is not a slam against Catholics because I really enjoy like, and, and value Catholicism very much. Um, but in the 12th, 13th, 14th century, this is how Catholicism viewed what happens next. You are baptized. You are baptized and made innocent. So then we have these other six sacraments for you to partake in that let you go Um, up the scale because we need you to be here to go to heaven. If you die here, you go to purgatory until you make it to there. The only people that make it to here are saints, the people who do miracles, St. Francis of Assisi and um, and, and St. Teresa of Avila, all these people, these saints. Sainthood happens as I'm baptized and then I work my way up. So I take communion, made a little way up. Looked at a nudie magazine, dang it, fell down here. We have confession, though. Confession brings us back to the line. Confess to a, uh, to a priest, he brings me back to innocence, but I'm only back at innocence. Okay, let's do communion again. Okay, let's do a good deed for an elderly woman. We're getting up there. Um, something else happens, we go down. Okay, what happens if I die below this line? Well, we have last rites in Catholicism, so you're brought back up to innocence, so at least you can go to purgatory until you're perfected. Uh, And so what happens is, what began to develop is, your life becomes this crazy roller coaster of trying to make it to perfection. Martin Luther, understanding this is the teaching of the church, begins to read Romans and begins to understand... What the heck? How did we get off this far? This is not even what the early church taught. This is not what the scriptures are teaching. He reads Romans and he sees what's going on. He sees that by faith in Jesus, we are brought from here to here. We are washed clean uh, and made innocent by his blood. And also at the same time, by faith in Jesus, I am clothed in his perfect and righteous life so that the Father sees me through the lens of Jesus Christ. So it's not that Jesus looks at me and is like, I don't see you as a sinner. No, he sees me wicked. He sees you wicked as you are, but sees you through the lens of Jesus, wrapped in his perfect life and washed clean by his blood and says, you are acceptable. You are adopted. You are my family now. Nothing can separate. Nothing can do you any harm. No bad can come against you. There may be suffering, but it's for your good. He brings you into the family, and he brings you into the family uh, I thought it was back here. I didn't turn it around. Imagine that other drawing is here. He does that because the thing that was separate, the thing that kept you here, was that enmity between him. You were not this. Now, because of the work of Jesus, he sees you, declares you to be perfect, and sees you through the lens of Jesus, so now I can exist in in that thing that was here. I can exist in this dependent, beautiful, perfect relationship, and while I'm in that relationship, while I'm in that relationship, and because of that relationship, I can, not just in declaration, but in actuality, I can grow into this. This is the word that we use called sanctification. I have been declared to be this. And the Holy Spirit now, because I've been adopted into the family of God, I am free uh, and able and free from the power of sin and the enemy to become this over the course of my life. So we call this, we call this justification, but that's a terrible word. In Greek, it's, it's a different word that we don't have in English. Righteousification. Justification just sounds like you did something bad and sort of it's okay. Righteousification sounds like you were depraved and you've been made righteous. So God sees you and says you are this. Nothing can change that. Nothing can change that. I've believed in Jesus. Here I am. Doesn't matter what I do. But most of us, I think, most of us live here. In your mind you live here. You're like, "Yeah, I've been washed clean by the blood of Jesus. Great. Now I really got to have my quiet time today. I really got to have it. And if I don't, he's going to be pretty pretty upset with me." And and I've done a ton of terrible things in the past. And so I know I'm here, but it's because he's sort of obligated because he's a loving God. He doesn't really want me here. The blood of Jesus, God God went from the very beginning, the very minute that humanity fell, the very first words spoken by God after the fall is the word spoken to the snake, which says the seed of the woman, Jesus, is going to crush the head of the serpent. The serpent is the reason we're stuck over there. But the work of Jesus brings us back to the side of dependency, joyful, beautiful relationship. But I really, really think most of us are spending so much time. We're so wrapped up in our performance being being the means by which we believe God is okay with me. So my question is my question is su- super easy really, what do you wh- when you woke up this morning or, or you, right now, how does God feel about you? What does He feel about you? Did Jesus come begr- begrudgingly? Is He looking at you disappointed because you could be doing a little better? If that's the case then you do not believe, I don't to say you don't believe in Jesus. My guess is, yeah, you believe in Jesus. You're trying to walk this thing out. But my guess is you don't really fully understand and go to war with the thoughts that cross your mind that are lies from the enemy and lies from the world. You exist in a passive relationship with your mind in which your mind goes off and you believe everything that it says. Instead of realizing that you're going to be lied to every day saying God is mad at you, you need to work a little harder, you need to do a little better, you need to make this thing look right, you need to toil and work or God is going to be unpleased with you. Displeased, not unpleased. Or we are stuck. So you may not be here. You may be stuck trying to do this on your own. You think, yeah, God's made me righteous and now it's my job to work my butt off to really become what he has declared me to be. This is the work of the Holy Spirit by the will of the Father through the sacrifice of the Son by the power of the Spirit this is by the will of the Father through the sacrifice of the Son by the power of the Spirit it is not by your volition it is not by you working really really hard to make God happy and you glorify Him you glorify Him by existing in this dependent relationship where you rest fully in His love and His care and all that He has done for you and then you move forward in that asking the Spirit to lead and moving and walking forward as He cleanses you and makes you who He wanted you to be to begin with all the while knowing that the work of Jesus makes you fully pleasing in his sight no matter what no matter how you fall and fail and fumble along the way the work of Jesus makes you pleasing and beautiful in his sight it's like we were in the garden before the fall you are pleasing you are acceptable everything is okay this is going to be fine trust me I will provide for you let's go I am the good shepherd right the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want he leads me in green pastures he leads me beside still waters he restores my soul he 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 does these things you are under no obligation to repay what the Lord has done for you. You under no obligation. And he was not under obligation to do it for you. He did it because he is good and gracious and merciful. And so every day you're going to battle thoughts of not good enough, didn't do the right things, the things I've done in the past make God angry with me, make God mad at me, and you're going to go to your Bible and try to fix it. Let me say this. It is Jesus who fixes it, not your Bible. I think we go to the Bible as like a talisman. If I read this, it's going to give me a happy feeling, and it never gives you a happy feeling, or it does seldom or occasionally. This book is telling you truths to believe that you would actively anchor in. If you want to, go to the Bible, but look at what it says about God and tell him that you believe it and that you're going to reject all of these thoughts that are coming against you. Actively engage in that war. That's that's what's making you feel like crap. That's what's making you disconnected from what the Lord wants to do in your life. I'm not saying don't read the Bible at all. I'm just saying use it for what it was given to us for. It is not a trinket or a talisman. Opening up is not going to make light shine from heaven. My, okay, we've gone too far. Um, yeah. Engage in this war. Your mind is going to go crazy. Actively see and understand what are the thoughts going on. What are they telling me? Are they making me feel guilty? Are they making me feel shame? They are not from the Lord. The blood of Jesus cleanses me from all of these things. Actively engage in that and use your Bible to that end.